Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast, and I am Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. Firstly, apologies for the different sound today. I'm recording in a different location and not in my <clears throat> studio, um, uh, so it might sound very different to normal, but regardless, we're going to continue. In today's show, we've got Elliot and Tim and a special guest. We have Adam, who's also um, asked review on Twitter. They talk about the Hull City 4-0 win in the end. Sounds very convincing. Maybe not so so convincing in the first half, but they'll get to all that. But at least we're through to the quarterfinals. A real possibility to get to semi-finals. Which is amazing when you consider the fact that we've won the FA Cup for the last two years in a row. On that front, all is good. So anyway, let me hand over to the guys and I'll be back after the Watford match in the FA Cup once more. Enjoy the podcast. Arsenal travel to Hull in an FA Cup replay and pick up two braces and a hat trick. More on that in a moment, but this is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Uh, the braces were Theo and Giroud's braces of goals. The hat trick, of course, though, in typical Arsenal fashion, injuries. That's right. Never let them say that we do it the easy way, my friends. And we are here to discuss uh, Arsenal progressing to face Watford on Sunday instead of West Brom on Saturday. Those of you that were planning... A Saturday trip to the Emirates. You have to change your plans, vice versa. Anyway, uh, Tim, you can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. You can hear him occasionally on the Arscast as well and read him on Ars blog. And you've heard all this before, so I'll just introduce him. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Hello there, indeed. And joining us for the first time, I am delighted to uh, introduce Adam. You can find him on Ars Review at Twitter. If I have gotten that wrong, please correct me. But thank you so much for being here, Adam. Hey, that's correct. All right. It's the first thing I've done right all day. Um, <laughs> So, uh, there's nothing like a win and scoring goals and all that great stuff to put everybody in a good mood, but there's nothing like banners and injuries to bring everybody down and revert to internecine warfare. So, we've got plenty to dig into. Um, I, I want to start with you, Tim, because I just have a quick question. Mm. I'm going to assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that you're not in favor of the banner, the arson, thanks for the memories, but... You know, um, I don't support no the sentiment behind it, No. Okay, so then here's what I want to ask you. As someone who goes to these games and is around the people doing this, and I assume knows those people and has seen them at other away days and mm-hmm. has, you know, a relationship, be it good or bad, with these people, mm-hmm. what is, you know, there's a lot of bickering and arguing and finger-pointing and name-calling on social media about the banner and about the people who hold the banner and back and forth, but what is the environment like at the ground among the people who both agree and don't agree with both its sentiment and its presence? Um, it's it's really really mixed actually. A lot of people, I think, including myself, are just a bit apathetic to it. To be honest, I, I don't really care. I don't agree with it. Um, and obviously, the, the bearers of the banner have every right to express that sentiment. And in truth, as much as I don't support the sentiment, it is fairly politely expressed. You know, it doesn't say "fuck off" or anything like that. Um, so, I mean, if you're going to express that sentiment, it's it's being done in probably as polite and tasteful a fashion as you could probably want. I mean, personally, I, I don't really care about it, and I don't think an awful lot of people do. I think most people are of the opinion that, okay, I you know, I don't have to hold it up. 
um, and therefore, you know, not necessarily in my name, as it were. Um, I think there's a slight kind of... I'd probably feel differently if I was sat next to them in the ground and all the pictures that went in the newspapers had my mug standing next to it. I probably wouldn't like that, to be honest with you. Um, but there, there is there are some people who react quite badly to it, and I, I do know that on definitely on one of the occasions that it was unfurled a few years ago now it's been around for a little while but one of the perpetrators was punched um in the face for having it um so i think in a minority it does stir up you know a little bit of ill feeling um which to be honest isn't really i mean people that don't really go to many arsenal away games talk a lot about how brilliant the away fans are and how brilliant the atmosphere is and yeah there's a lot of noise but actually there's quite a lot of um there's quite a lot of, i don't want to say there's a lot of kind of arguing and bickering it happened behind me last night two guys came to blows within five minutes of the game um and in fairness one of the guys i wanted to punch because he was we're talking three four minutes into the game furiously angry every single time you know a, a pass was a yard misplaced he was furiously angry so that's why he came to the game he wanted to be angry and I think a lot of people do that for Arsenal away games now that's the pleasure people derive from it they just want to be angry Um, and you know and I I even yelled shut up at one point because I was just getting sick of hearing it Um, and a, a guy a bit close to him obviously expressed the same sentiment possibly more forcefully and you know there was a bit of pushing and shoving and you know, squaring up and the rest of it. And this is actually very common at away games in the last few years. It's a lot more factious than I think people realise because they just hear the singing and things like that. And actually, often, the singing masks... It's deliberately designed to mask some of the discontent. That um, that 8-2 defeat at Old Trafford, for example, where all the Arsenal fans started singing We Love You Arsenal, that was done because a lot of people started chanting for Arsene Wenger's head. And it was kind of a a masking agent, shall we say. And, um, Interesting. And it was just because people didn't want to hear that and they didn't want that coming out. So it was it was designed deliberately to stop those kind of isolated pockets of voices um, from spilling out in that way. And it's often done in that way. So, you know, with away matches, I think away fans are much more active on things like social media and websites. They're much more likely to, quote-unquote, consume the club in their day-to-day lives, whereas when you go to the Emirates, most people, the, the majority probably of people that go there don't think or don't think a thing about Arsenal during the whole week. Um, they just kind of right. go there to a while away a Saturday afternoon. Whereas it's a lot more factious um, in the away end. But kind of vis-a-vis the banner, I think the majority of people don't really like it, but the majority of people don't really say anything about it and. I didn't hear anyone talking about it last night. It wasn't until I kind of got out of the ground and I was sitting down on the motorway and had had a look at my timeline that this big debate emerged. It it didn't really emerge inside the ground at all. So um, I think, you know, far be it from me to think I'm representing the majority or anything like that, but I think the majority of people don't really like it but tolerate it. Yeah. You know, it's good to know, first of all, that 
those of you going to the away matches are getting along about as well as the rest of us on social media and around the world. I wouldn't want to think that you were enjoying any special privilege. Um, but I think people, one of the most commonly misunderstood rights is freedom of speech. Mm. Because people think that freedom of speech is freedom from reaction to the speech. Yeah, and that's yeah. absolutely not the case. You have the freedom to speak and others have the freedom to respond to that speech as exactly. they see fit. I have um, the right to my opinion on your opinion, and so it goes round. And, and, yeah. and probably my, my kind of position on it is informed by the fact that you know, I believe passionately in free speech, and sometimes that comes with drawbacks. Sometimes people are going to say things that you don't like or don't agree with, and really you've just got to be an adult and grow up and get on with it, really. Yeah. Um, Look, I defend their right to say something I disagree exactly. with, but that right comes with my right to vehemently oppose their opinion. Exactly. Um, so, so, you know, I, I think, all right, good, good enough. We've got a lot to get to in the game, but I really do appreciate that insight. And since it is a fairly um, hot topic, Adam, and I, I don't want to leave you out of it because I, I think there's a lot of opinions and not just match-going fans. I mean, uh, I know a little bit of, of what you uh, share on social media. It's our first time speaking. Just in terms of your personal opinion of the banner and his presence at the games, how do you feel it should be handled? Um, I mean, I've also been at some games before where it was unfurled. Is that the right word? Mm -hmm. uh, I, think, I think my view is basically that I think people often get implicated in this. Obviously, Arsenal fans are not a homogenous block. But the way it's reported in the media is kind of Arsenal fans unfurl this banner. And Tim and I, and, and you, for that matter, have kind of quite strong social media platforms and we're able to express our own views. But I think a lot of people don't have kind of that kind of audience and so they kind of become implicated in this, and they're kind of seen as representative of it, even though, as Tim says, um, they don't support it at all. And so it's not... Uh, and so whilst I do support the freedom of speech aspect of it, I do also kind of have a qualm insofar as it kind of comes to be seen to represent far more people than it actually does. Yeah, I mean, well, think about it this way. Let's say you have a block of 400 people who adore Arsene Wenger and want him to stay forever, and a block of 10 people that vehemently want him out. Yeah. And the 10 people unfurl a massive banner. And the 400 people just sort of stand there singing and chanting. A photograph of that environment is going to misrepresent the prevalence of anti-Arsene Wenger sentiment. Yeah. Right? So I totally get your point that it, it may, where it may be inappropriate is only in that it is, it is not representative of what the true environment is. Now, I do think there is a growing segment of people that are frustrated by the job that the manager is doing, but that's that's a topic for another day. Let's let's get to the match itself. Um, it was maybe not a vintage performance at all times, but certainly a great result, and really one of the few times this season we've actually really put an opponent to the sword and, and run up a fairly high scoreline. I think it's only the second time we've outscored an opponent by three goals. One of them was Manchester United, so that was a great chance to work that back in. Um, but Adam, as far as the match itself... We'll get to the injuries later, but in terms of performers that impressed you, who really stood out on the day? Um, I thought, and, I, and I'm not a big fan of his at all, but I thought Kieran Gibbs actually played very well considering how little he's played this season. Um, I was quite impressed by how he came in. I was speaking to some friends the other day about how we basically needed to rotate the fullbacks and how they seemed very tired, but the issue with kind of wanting balance meant that you kind of wanted to bring Gibbs and someone like Chambers in on the other side rather than just bringing Gibbs in from Montreal. Um, but I thought he played really well. And um, similarly to previous performances, I thought Iwobi did well, although I do think it's hard to judge him 
against kind of this caliber of opposition. They were really poor, weren't they? <laughs> I, I think Hull are probably the best team in the championship, but that wasn't Hull. Uh, right. So, yeah, they weren't very good. I mean, they're better than Aston Villa. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, as far as Iwobi goes, Adam, I mean, you know, we've seen these young players that flatter to deceive in the past and, you know, have have a bright beginning that fades. Serge Nabry comes to mind. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain at the moment comes to mind. You could even put Theo into that group. Jack Wilshire, although more due to injury than anything else. Um, we have to resist the temptation to buy into him being ready for this next step, don't we? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, mean, I think presumably the next step is to see kind of 10 or 15 minute cameos, but those become harder when whenever really winning in the Premier League. So it's quite hard to bring people on with when you're tuning up with 15 minutes to go, when you're never tuning up with 15 minutes to go. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point. You know, this is the challenge of modern football too, right? I mean, Alex Iwobi could be the next big thing. He could be the next great midfielder. Um, but if in the summer we don't spend $40 million on a midfielder because Alex Awobi deserves a chance, a lot of people will lose their mind, and maybe rightfully so. How do you know when the time is right to bring a youngster through, and like, like the manager did with Cesc Fabregas, because he's banged on the door and proven he's ready, versus really investing in an experienced quality player? I mean, Tim, what did you think of Awobi, and, and what do you make of his chances to be more of an involved, uh, impactful part of the first team? Um, I think we'll know a lot um, of what the manager thinks if he selects him again on Sunday against Watford because I think this is a slightly better class of opposition we're going to be playing now. And uh, I think having rested a few players this midweek, will that inform his team selection on Sunday? I think it will a little bit. I think we'll it certainly see. doesn't hurt that now that we play Sunday and have to go to Spain on Wednesday instead of Saturday, Wednesday. Right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'd imagine you, you might see someone like Hector Bellerin come back in, for example, um, and maybe Coquelin as well. So I think there'll be a, a few changes. But the, the acid test will be whether he starts on Sunday. I was, um, I was impressed by him. I have to say I was much more impressed by him once we went 2-0 up and a lot more space opened up. I think in the first half, it's overstating it to say that he struggled, but he certainly wasn't as influential. He was under a bit more pressure, um, albeit I think he quickly cottoned on to the fact that um, Joel Campbell had the bit between his teeth, at least for the first hour before he, he tired quite a lot, I think. And uh, he, he kind of moved over to that side to create combinations with Joel Campbell. And, and I think that demonstrates intelligence in him in that he quickly understood who the threat was and with this kind of free role he had he decided to go over to that side of the pitch because I don't think he was doing that in the first 10 minutes I think that's that's his intuition is the way I read that mm -hmm. um, and and I, I think he was very good but I agree with Adam I, I don't think you know Hull's second string perhaps not quite the quality of opposition to judge him on once we went 2-0 up and Hull kind of gave up, he was very, very eye-catching, but not necessarily as much 0-0 or even 1-0 um, when we came under a bit of pressure as well, actually. So I'm, I, li I like the look of him. I know from having watched him in the under-21s that this isn't really a role he's played before, this number 10 role. He actually played as a striker more often than not in the under-21s, but... I said in the, after the, on the podcast in the last two FA Cup games, I actually think it's really smart to give him this role because it's 
it's the nicest role to have on the pitch. Everyone wants to play number 10 because it's the most eye-catching role with the least amount of responsibility. That's why everybody wants to play it. And if you've got a young player you're looking to give confidence, then it's, it's probably a good shout, actually. So I, I was quietly impressed with him. Um, but I think, you know, to Adam's point, giving him some minutes when the team is playing well and ahead is, is the way to go at the moment. For example, when we brought him on at Old Trafford, uh, you know, the cameo wasn't impressive and I don't blame him for that at all because the team wasn't and it just wasn't the right circumstance. So, you know, this, the circumstances kind of went for him a little bit in that in that second half. But I think there's a lot of promise there as a player and, and to further your point, I think Rory Smith wrote a very good piece on ESPN last week speaking specifically about Rashford at Manchester United, but he was kind of saying it's all very well, clubs like Chelsea and Manchester City investing loads and loads of money in their academies, but actually opportunities priceless. And sometimes that comes up just out of pure luck, like it did with Rashford, for example. Just ask Francis Cochran. Exactly, exactly. And and luck, luck is a very, very underrated but huge element of football in general. Um, and I'm not talking about, oh no, we hit the bar or, or finishing or anything like that. I mean, in a player's career, being in the right place at the right time is hugely, hugely um, an underrated facet. And, you know, the the example that Arsenal fans love is would Ashley Cole have ever gone on to be the left-back he became were Silvino's passport not made of blue tack? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, probably not. Um and I mean, you can go through, you know, if Abu Dhabi hadn't been broken by a call center operator, exactly. you know, what would his career have been? I, th- th- that's absolutely right. I mean, luck and, and misfortune and good fortune, especially at a crucial period, really weigh heavily on on the careers of players. And we saw that with Francis Coughlin. And maybe Awobi, maybe Ramsey's injury opens a door for Awobi that he walks through mm. and shows that he's ready. I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, we all remember the salad days of the – Carling Cup when Fran Morita and Carlos Vela and Rio Miachi and players like that were flattering to deceive. So I I think when it comes to those kind of players, you just have to be very, very careful about planning for them to make the next step because that next step is the biggest step in their development. Um, one player who is going to play a lot um, and given the injuries a lot more now, and I'm curious to get both of your takes on his performances, uh, Mohamed Elneny. Adam, his Arsenal career got off to a sort of inauspicious start and that he just never seemed to be able to get picked, uh, which was mystifying, but the manager's picking him now. I thought he was impressive in the Derby and he, I thought was one of our better performers on the day against Hull. What'd you make of his performance? Yeah. I mean, to me, it's all a bit odd because uh, I assumed he really must've been quite bad in training to not get picked ahead of Flamini. Um, (laughs) And yet, when, he, when he's come in, particularly in the last couple of games, I thought he's actually played very well, um, showed quite good positional awareness in terms of dropping in when Flores had pushed up and that sort of thing. I thought he played very well. Um, I would definitely consider him above family in the pecking order, at the very, very least. Is the issue that he's that he's not a holder, though? I mean, is that part of the issue, right? I mean, he, he seems to be more that box-to-box. He's playing more of what Santi did or more of what Ramsey did has been doing rather than what Coughlin or Flamini do or is supposed to do anyway? I, I imagine that is part of the issue. Um, 
I still kind of, without wanting to damn Flamini too much, would have considered... Oh, go, go on. Damn, damn, damn him all straight to hell. I would have considered him to be a, a preferential... Pre- sorry, preferable option over Flamini. Um, so I think even considering, you know, like ta- possible like, tactical limitations, I would still think he must have at least had, you know, some kind of language difficulties or um, been taking time to adapt or fitness issues to not have been picked previously. Well, well, so let me ask it to you like this, I guess. Is El Nenny battling for Francis Coughlin's job or is El Nenny the heir apparent partner to Francis Coughlin? Ah, uh, being uh, uh, asked how long pieces. I don't... I, I, <laughs> How long is a piece I, of string? Well, I can never... I, I always find it very difficult to predict what the next tactical iteration of the team would be. I would think the evolution of the central midfield would be to find someone to play alongside Aaron Ramsey, at least in the medium term. Um, but Arsene does seem very keen on Coquelin, so may, maybe. But I, I think it was interesting in the derby that when he played Coquelin and Elneny together, he then played two attacking fullbacks. I know that Monreal apparently had a calf injury, but... I do think it was kind of saying we need to get a bit more attacking quality uh, from the fullbacks if we're going to pair those two in central midfield. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes complete sense. I mean, it is certainly a more conservative central midfield, but you could argue that it's a platform that allows the more technical players uh, in the front four, so to speak, to express themselves more. Um, so, Tim, for you... Not just what will the manager do, but what would you do were you manager um, if Arsene Wenger was thanked for the memories and said goodbye? Um, what's the role you would want to see on any, and, and who would you want partnering him? I think it's one of those things where we can take a view on it um, dependent on the game. So for you know an away game where we're likely to come under a bit of pressure, I'd probably want Coquelin there. And, you know, Coquelin and Elneny, you know, make, makes perfect sense. Perhaps for games, home games, of which we've got a few in the run, the running home games where we're not going to come under as much pressure, and there's going to be a lot more possession, and there's going to be a lot more emphasis on us moving and circulating the ball properly. Then, you know, I think El Nenny as the only quote-unquote holding midfielder in there could work. The thing I quite like about El Nenny, and one of the reasons I'm beginning to think that maybe he was bought is that actually he seems quite versatile in terms of his role to me at the moment looks like that he fills gaps because we have lots of players that like to wander and actually what he's very good at is filling in the gaps. Um, So, for example, at White Hart Lane when Ramsey was wandering in off the right, you know, he had his eye on that quite a lot and was quite often just shifting over just to make sure. And, you know, when you've got players particularly on the flanks in our kind of nominal front three that can be very very handy as well just having that player who is constantly on the lookout for where the gaps are uh, or have emerged and just kind of stepping back into them and I think that's a function really that can that can manifest itself in most midfield setups so basically whatever way we set up there is you know there's technically a role for Elneny there whether he's just the holder whether he's you know, playing alongside someone like Cochran and just filling in gaps for wide players that like to wander, whether he's just the straight-up number eight um, that links the attacking midfielder and the defensive midfielder. It looks to me so far like there's a role for him no matter what, which is very good news because 
you know, we're constantly having to change our midfield now, and um, particularly when at White Hart Lane moving Ramsey back to the right with Elneny and Coquelin looked like looked like it might have legs for us. Um, Ramsey goes and gets himself injured, um, and so we're probably going to see a lot more of Joel Campbell on the right in the coming weeks. And again, I, I think Elneny can work with that. So actually, there's there's a bit of free form to his game, uh, which I think certainly makes him, if not an absolute bona fide starter. It makes him a very useful player. And the other thing I really like about him is that he likes to move the ball first time. Um, time and time again, he's kind of popping off that one-touch pass, and that's something we've really, really lacked that's a great over the last out. few months. That's a great call-out, Tim. I mean, one of the things I tweeted during the match is the ball looks like it's moving a lot faster, especially uh, after we took the lead. It was moving a lot faster than it has been. And I think the ball has really been bogged down at people's feet over the last few weeks. Two touches, three touches, getting dispossessed, not not having that option available. And Elneny did just what we've been needing, someone who finds a pocket of space, receives the ball, and gives the ball. It's, um, it's almost filling in for what Arteta did for Arteta. us mm-hmm. so yeah. well, yeah. Yeah. No, I, it, was, it was great to see. And I, I think the question now will be, does the manager see him being able to be the holding midfielder in a more athletic Arteta type role, or does he see him as the box to box midfielder who starts attacks and more of the Santa Cazorla role alongside Francis Coughlin? Um, it'd be interesting to see what happens. Adam, the, the goals came from two players that desperately needed them. Theo Walcott and Olivier Giroud, weird games for both of them. I don't think either of them played well and both of them scored a brace. Um, how important do you think it is for both of them to get back on the score sheet? But what did you think of their performance overall in, in addition to the goals? Uh, I think it's almost kind of the story of Theo's career is that for years you've been able to look at the stats and see you know, a goal or an assist every other game and that's a very good return from a wide player or someone who's largely played as a wide player and yet uh, if you watch the games in full particularly in person you do often wonder exactly what he was doing for large portions of the game particularly when he's come on as a sub I think he's often been absolutely abysmal uh, and like struggled to come to the speed of the game Um and it's kind of, you know, you you take the rough with the smooth with Theo. You accept that you kind of, you, you accept you get some bad things with it and you also get the goals and the assists which he does provide. Um, and it's incredibly frustrating when he's bad because he has this ability to be really, really, really bad. And yet at the same time, you always feel there could just be something around the corner. I mean, a case in point is the first half against uh, Man City at the Emirates. Really didn't think he did very much for 35, 40 minutes. And then he curls one in brilliant goal um, and that's why it's so hard to judge his performance sometimes he is just really very involved uh, if we're really pegging a team back but often it's you feel like you're not getting much and then you do get quite a lot uh, or you get quite a lot of end product I'd hope um, it would give both of them and, and Giroud for that matter um, some confidence but uh, I mean I, I kind of go back to the point about the calibre of the opposition that it is difficult to know how much you can take from beating a second string hull how much can you take from those corner kicks he took? Those those were enjoyable, huh? <laughs> uh, uh, don't let him pay corners again. Yeah, that that I mean, <laughs> great tactical insight of the day. I, I mean, I get it. You you just hit the first ball way too short and didn't get it past the first man, so you need to hit the second one harder. But like that was that was an embarrassing moment for him. Um, Tim, to me. It looked like Theo just wanted to play through the middle and was forcing Giroud out to the wings at times. Did you see them kind of having a little meta 
battle among each other about who gets to play through the middle? I, I think that struck me as deliberate, to be quite honest. I, I don't know if it was or if it was Agreed. just something they worked out during the game. But I mean, um, Giroud was coming in from the channels quite a lot. I can't imagine yeah. that that's the plan. Well, he, he's been doing that quite a lot, um, actually, the last couple of months. Certainly since the turn of the year, he's been going into that left channel a lot because... You know, we kept seeing the same thing again and again. He was kind of, you know, in the D on the edge of the area looking to flick passes into people. And very quickly, other teams worked out that if you put two centre-halves there, that he can't flick the ball past them. Um, so he's been kind of moving off into the channels a little bit. And I'm not sure the other forwards have really cottoned on to that yet. So the likes of Alexis and Walcott haven't really been moving beyond him. They've just kind of been occupying the same space. Um, last night, you're right, Theo did go did, did go quite central quite a lot more. And I think that made sense if you've got someone like Joel Campbell on the right-hand side, who is nominally at least quite creative. Um, and as we saw with the third goal, he's got a great eye for a pass. And he's quite hard-working. So it kind of made sense to, in terms of balancing that front three. You've got Kind of, you've got the big battering ram in Giroud. You've got the guy who's running up and down and can deliver a pass on his left, open out his body and find a pass with his left foot. And then you've got Theo who who can run in behind and who can finish um, when he wants to. And, and again, we saw that last night. So it's, I, I think we did see that. Yes, we did see Giroud and Walcott playing quite central. Um, but at the same time, I, I do think that there was that it was planned, not least because Hull were playing a back three as well. Um, and I think Arsenal thought that they could find gaps there. And actually in the first half, really, I don't think we exploited that space well enough. The final ball just wasn't quite there. Um, there were quite a few promising kind of breakaway situations. And we didn't, just didn't quite either get that final shot or that final ball right. Um so I, I think, yes, I definitely observed what you observed in that respect, but I like to think that it was that it was planned for. Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know if it was or it wasn't planned for. I know there were times when it certainly looked like they weren't entirely sure where each of them should be. Um, but you'd hate to think that it was totally unplanned and that Theo was literally just rewriting the script on the fly. Um, although who knows? Adam, I think there's a player who I may owe a bit of an apology to. Well, there may be several, uh, but most of them aren't going to get it. Uh, but Joel Campbell's a guy that I kind of wrote off before the season. I think if the manager was here, um, it would only be because we had him tied up. But uh, I think he'd even admit that Joel Campbell wasn't necessarily in his plan. But Joel Campbell stuck around. He's kept his head down. He's worked really hard. Is Joel Campbell impressing because we just have a paucity of good attacking talent on the flanks or is Joel Campbell impressing because he's a better player than maybe we anticipated? I think, um, and Tim, feel free to disagree, but I think Tim and I both always kind of thought he had a very good eye for a pass, but it was kind of the, the rest of the game and it was particularly whether he would play the percentages enough. Um, he, he could, anybody can make a great through ball if you give them enough opportunities to do so. I still think that he's kind of good against mid-table teams. I wouldn't, you know, particularly be keen to see him starting against a Chelsea or a City or a United or Spurs. Um, I st- I, I, as in, I, I think it's very hard in the sense we probably were slightly too quick to write him off. 
But the pendulum seems to have swung almost too far the other way. And people are now thinking he's great, you know, being, the, the idea of taking him off being booed. And the truth is probably, as always, and I do sound like a social science student now, uh, very much somewhere <laughs> in the middle. Uh, I, I'm going to correct you on one thing. Uh, Chelsea is a mid-table team, so we, we could play, play him against them. Okay. Uh, so, well, so Adam, let me ask you this then. I, I think, obviously, a lot of important fixtures coming up there. Other than Barcelona, they're all really now must-win. And Danny Welbeck, I think, has looked fantastic, but Giroud and Theo got a brace, both got a brace, and the manager has been prone to picking both of them at times this season. For you, is Welbeck still the guy you want to see starting, and do you worry at all that the goal scoring from Giroud and Theo will give the manager a reason to maybe pick one of them instead? Uh, I think it depends largely on how we expect opposition teams to set up. Um, I think against teams who are going to sit uh, a bit deeper, I'm keener to pick Giroud and kind of see if he can, you know, knock some balls almost uh, back into the areas where Azel will be. Uh, I mean, back forwards. I, I, the direction thing's not making much sense here. I think against teams who play a higher line, I would still kind of be keen on Welbeck. But the thing about Welbeck is that he is a brilliant striker apart from the scoring goals part, uh, which is incredibly frustrating. Uh, I think he is off the ball uh, a great deal better than Giroud. But whether uh, that is enough when we just need to put the ball in the net a bit more, which has been our massive problem this season. Maybe you pick the guy who's at least scored 20 goals this season and has a track record of scoring. Adam, what's your preferred front three under all the circumstances right now? I think given that the Welbeck-Alexis duo seems to work much better than the Giroud-Alexis duo, I'd have Alexis, Welbeck, and then... Given the injuries, probably Joel Campbell for some balance. Yeah, I, I don't think that we really even have a choice. I mean, now the question is, will the manager go with hierarchy, do you think, and go Alexis Giroud, Welbeck, or Alexis Theo and Welbeck just because he tends to have faith in his guys and Joel maybe isn't one of his guys yet? I think I think the issue is is it's 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 almost like some of the previous end of seasons where you just go with what, you know, tactically just about fits to try and get us over the line. In this case, hopefully for a title rather than fourth place. Um, don't laugh too much. Uh, so I, I think he might leave Theo out. Okay. Uh, Tim, time to put on your mind-reading helmet. What do you think the manager is going to do with the front three in light of the injuries? I think... I think he'll change it. Um, he'll change it around depending on the games um, and whatnot. So, uh, as Adam said earlier, when we play teams who play a little bit higher up and who try and press the space and the pitch, then Welbeck's probably your guy. For teams that sit a little bit further back, Giroud's probably your guy. I think he might alternate Walcott and Campbell on the right. I would prefer to see Campbell at the moment. My, my preferred front three would be the same as Adam's. I think that's uh, the most balanced um, that we can put out at the moment because Joel, he works hard. He's you know got a creative edge to his game and Alexis seems much happier with either Welbeck or Walcott up front and I'd rather have Welbeck myself with those two. Um, and the thing about Welbeck, I mean, he, he has scored a couple of goals, albeit from set pieces. I don't know if that changes anything. Really, but he scored a couple of goals since he's back. But I think the thing is about Welbeck is that 
other players are happier playing with him. So I, like I said on the post-Tottenham pod, I don't think it's a massive coincidence that Alexis and Ramsey both scored while Welbeck was playing up front. Um, and that might be me reading too much into it. But, um, but I mean, the, the good thing from our point of view is in the last four games now, after a period where we really struggled to score, in the last four games, Welbeck, Campbell, Alexis, Walcott and Giroud have all been on the score sheet. And to different degrees, they're all quite streaky goal scorers. Well, certainly Walcott and Giroud are, and Alexis has been this season. So hopefully um, that kind of starts them off on a little streak. But What you're I, saying is they're all going to score hat-tricks every time they play now, right? I mean, can we get you on the record that's, for that? That's the dream. <laughs> um, that's and, Adrian. So, so in, in answer to your question, I think he's going to change it around depending on the game, depending on the circumstances, who's tired. Joel Campbell, like last night, I thought Joel Campbell was probably our best player, but that last 25 minutes, he looked absolutely knackered. He always looks absolutely knackered. I don't know if it's just because he's not really used to playing 90 minutes. And, and like I say, he does work hard and he hasn't really got into the idea of pacing himself yet. And had we not had injuries, I, I think he might have come off last night with, with 15, 20 minutes to go. So, I mean, it, it, it depends, really. I can't see him doing what he did with Walcott last season, uh, for example, where he just completely you know, ignored him, shall we say, for a couple of months until those last two games. But I, th- I think, you know, resting Welbeck, you know, even from the bench last night, I think that's an indication that he wants him to start at Barcelona, for yeah. example. And I think the front three, he starts at the new camp because, make no mistake, he will take that game absolutely seriously. And I think the team you see in the new camp will be what he considers his best, given existing options. Yeah, and and he may, you know, he may look at Theo now as his set piece specialist. So, you know, he's got to got to figure out games where that's going to be important. All right, so Tim, the the one really big issue that comes from the game. I mean, I, I think we can assume that Murdasacker's injury, while it looked gruesome, won't be a long term absence. Um, Gabriel's injury, I don't think we know, but I think the manager put it in the it's going to be okay category. Plus, Kashelny's probably just about back. The one that he expressed as being most serious, which I took to mean he will never play football again, is Aaron Ramsey. Yeah. How important is the loss of Aaron Ramsey, and how will we have to reshape to cope with him not being there? Um, I, I think I think it's a really, really big blow. I think, actually, of the three players we had injured, he's the one that we could least afford to lose. And I know he's not in sparkling form at the moment, but... I think people underestimate just how much he does actually add. And I really think that we've hit upon something in that Spurs game with Coquelin, and Elneny and Ramsey behaving like a midfield three, basically. Um, I, I really think we hit on something there and we're just not going to be able to develop it. Um, and while Cazorla's is out as well, I, I do think that's a bit of a problem um, because effectively, I, I think Joe Campbell can do a good job on that right-hand side and he can add some creativity for us. What he can't really do or what he doesn't do is drop in and create a midfield three in the way that Ramsey does um, that, I, that I think is so effective. So basically, having 
it looked like we'd kind of fallen upon something that might work and now we've got to rip it up and start again and with our existing options we're going to have to really go back to where we were a couple of weeks ago when we're just nominally playing with two central midfielders who don't get a lot of support um, and maybe that's less of a problem when you've got two slightly more defensively minded midfielders like Coquelin and Elneny but nevertheless I think for that to work particularly when you've got a player like Erzin in the team you really need someone coming off of those wide positions and creating the three so I do think that that's a big blow we have got in fairness, he might not have played against Watford anyway, and I think we'll see some changes, maybe not quite as many, but some. The Barcelona game is gone anyway, therefore, and hopefully he can be back after the international break. So hopefully, the, the best we can hope for, I think, is that Everton is the only game where it's really an issue. Um, nevertheless, you know, Everton are a team that like to press quite a lot and therefore having an extra body in that central midfield, as we did against Spurs, would be quite useful. Um, but yeah, of the three, I think he's the one we could afford to lose, just because Kishan is coming back, so we could just about cover for a centre-half injury, and I thought Callum Chambers was really good when he moved to centre-half, and I think he has been the last few times he's played there. He, he really seems to have picked up a little bit. So I, I wouldn't, as much as I don't think he's a great partner for Mertesacker and vice versa, I'm less concerned about that now than when he first came to Arsenal because I think he looks a better player, albeit on a fairly small amount of evidence so far. Um, so I think we could have covered perhaps with the other two in a way that we just can't with Ramsey. Yeah. And really, Cazorla's due to be back, I think, after the international break. So it'll be interesting <laughs> to see... <laughs> Who comes back first? And if they both come back at the same time, it'll be very interesting to see um, how he plays that. The quaint notion that a player will come back when they're due <laughs> to come back. <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Um, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I think the reason Joel Campbell might be in line for more starts is if you wanted to point to who can play on the right, who can at least even remotely approximate the way Ramsey was playing out there, I think Joel Campbell's the only one who can even kind of do that come yeah. into midfield a little bit more and be more because Walcott's not going to do it no Walcott won't do it and I don't know that you get the most out of Welbeck putting him out there to do it either um, so Adam then I guess the the real question now for me is I think what we're going to see is some rotation at the weekend in preparation for the Barcelona match and if you said to me right now gun your head Arsenal are going to win a trophy pick the trophy you think they're going to win I'd say the FA Cup because I think the league is gone and the Champions League is most certainly gone. Um, everybody's going to want the manager to pour everything into the league. Um, the manager himself is going to be reluctant, and, and I think rightfully so, to just throw away the new camp. But is there an argument now that the prudent thing to do would be to play your best teams in the FA Cup, given that Chelsea play Everton, so you only have one of them, and Manchester United, those are really the teams left that can scare you. That's a chance for silverware. That's a chance for a historic silverware, a hat trick of FA Cups, which hasn't been done since the 1800s. I don't see him doing it, but isn't there a strong argument that the, the prioritized fixtures should actually be the FA Cup fixtures? Well, there's only three FA, uh, maximum three FA Cup games left anyway, or four, I guess, if they were replay against Watford. Uh, so, I'm not, I'm not sure we necessarily need to prioritise as such away from the league. 
I guess the question is the away game to Barcelona. Um, and whilst I agree with you, I think maybe 2% chance of qualifying, 3% if you want. Uh, it's the same as kind of when we were playing away to Bayern in the group stage. And people were like, oh, we should take Ozil off at half-time. And we were three, well, I can't remember the exact half-time score was. And I just really do wonder how much damage it would do to morale and two young players to send them to the new camp and get beat 6 or 7 nil, which is entirely possible if you play a load of reserves against Messi, Suarez, Neymar, etc. Would you, would you play your strongest lineup on Sunday, though? I think it's the only thing Watford have left to play for, so I think Watford are going to be very up for it. But I still think you can rest a few people and touch wood, I don't want to, you know... I, I still think we should be all right to beat them, even with a few players rotated out. Yeah, I, I guess it's just to me right now, if I'm sizing up our chances of finishing this season with a flourish and something really good, the FA Cup looks like our best chance, and I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be weakening the squad against Watford with the hope of recovering anything against Barcelona. I mean, Tim, let's wrap it up with with that question. Does the manager have to now put all the resources into the FA Cup and play his strongest team on Sunday? Um, I think we'll see, I think certainly something closer to his strongest team, yes. I, I don't think it's necessarily a choice. I think we could do both, um, to be quite honest. There's there's not that much left of the season now. We're looking at probably, realistically, a maximum of about 12 games, um, all things being well. So, you know, I, I don't think we're quite in a position where we have to put a completely scratched side out against Watford. I think we could certainly play one of Alexis or Ozil, for example, perhaps leave the other one on the bench for the last half an hour if needed. Um, I, I don't think that seriously you can do anything other than play your best team against Barca because it's basically a damage limitation exercise and I think it would be quite damaging um, to get really badly beaten and the best way to to avoid that is to play out your strongest team and if you're trying to convince players like Mesut Ozil and Alexis Sanchez to sign contracts then I don't think putting out the stiffs against Barcelona is really going to convince them of your ambition <laughs> or of your belief in yourself and now now players... we don't have any stiffs in our squad. come on <laughs> <laughs> and so you know, and, and those players will want to play in the new camp as well. I might be pragmatic at the new camp in terms of, with half an hour left, I might be looking at taking some players off if and when it's absolutely clearly beyond us. I mean, uh, but, but just just to play devil's advocate, I, he could be cute about it, right? Like if he thinks Welbeck's his best guy, and he thinks pairing Welbeck with Alexis and Joel, he could go with like Alexis Welbeck and Joel up front against Watford, and then Alexis Giroud and Theo against Barcelona, and yeah. no one's going to necessarily accuse him of fielding a weak inside. But yeah. deep down, he might know he put what he prefers out there for the FA Cup. Absolutely, absolutely, and I, I think I said on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, that you know he could be cute like that in terms of giving Welbeck minutes as well, um, you know, upping his sharpness and his fitness a bit more. At the time, I think I speculated that maybe if Cazorla was ready, we could do something like that. But obviously, that's not going to happen now. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. He, he can be you know cute like that. He can play. No one's going to say that it, that he's weakened his team by playing the likes of Giroud and Walcott. Um, so yeah, I. I I think he very well could do that. I think he might do that as well. But 
you know, I, th- I think it would be dangerous to say put all of our eggs in the FA Cup basket because you know cup competitions are cup competitions at the end of the day, and you can be out in a second. And if you put all of your eggs in there, and at the detriment to everything else, then it's it's not great. And I think there's a lot to be said for momentum at this time of the season as well. And kind of look where we're getting somewhere towards building some and the result and the performance against Hull will help that so I, I think I, I don't think there's any one competition in which he will really put on the back burner I think you know we, we won't quite see what he considers to be his best team against Watford I think it will be quite close and we might see the, the rotation you talked about there we'll see I, I think at this point, and I, I get that this is a little bit pessimistic, but I think winning the FA Cup is our best chance that this season ends on a high. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that if we do rotate at to some level, it won't be to such an extent that we're mortgaging that opportunity for what really looks like a lost cause against Barcelona. Although I fully acknowledge we should not be sending out a week inside at the new camp. Um, hey. I really appreciate you coming on for the first time, Adam, and hopefully there'll be many times to follow. But uh, if you are looking for Adam on Twitter, which you should be doing, it is Arse Review. If you're following him, great job. If you're not following him, what the hell have you been up to? Get on it. Uh, Adam, thanks so much. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no, it was a real pleasure. And Tim, you're already following him. And if you're not already following him, I assume you have a good reason, and I'm not going to tell you what to do with your life. You can find him there uh, on Twitter, at Stoberto. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure, as always. The pleasure is always mine, I assure you. Um, my name is Elliot Smith. Uh, you can, if you have not already, block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. You can give us a five-star review on iTunes. That's literally the only option. I, I checked. They said, no, only five stars. I'm sorry. But what they said is if you give a five-star review, you can then write nasty stuff in the comments section below that. So it's really the best strategy, I would say. Anyway, we'll be talking to you after Watford on Sunday as we march towards a hat trick of FA Cups and uh, impending doom in Spain. Until then, have a great weekend. Cheers, and we'll talk to you after Watford.